Holy Spirit, we invite you here this morning once again to be our comforter of the events that have gone on this week. We thank you that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus, and that even though there's chaos in this world, we know that he is king. We pray that you once again um, draw our hearts to him, to prize him, to love him, to cherish him above all else. We pray that as we turn our attention to this next passage in Acts, that you would again exalt the risen Christ for us in our hearts, that we would be captivated by him, the mercy that we find in him and the holiness that we see in our triune God. We ask for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Uh, the last time we were in Acts, we took a little break last week, but the last time we were in Acts, we saw that, Luce, uh, that, Luce, that Luke Luce. highlighted uh, the prayer life of the community in response to the threats from the Jewish leadership. And this time we're going to revisit, or Luke's going to revisit with us, uh, another aspect of the community, which is uh, their sharing of goods within the fellowship. But this time around, he highlights kind of a disturbing development. But let's first look at, uh, at how he intros it, starting verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, let's stop there for a second. These opening two verses are another summary statement by Luke, similar to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 43 and 44. It's the same themes. It's actually, though, the same themes in reverse order, which is kind of interesting. But what four things do you see characterize this Christian community? What are the four things that characterize them? One mind, one heart, heart and soul. Think about that. 5,000 people at least. And Luke says they were of one heart and mind. How do you get there? How did that happen? Any ideas? Jesus. Holy Spirit, Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Holy Spirit, Jesus. Always good. Um, what else do you see as a characteristic? This, by the way, is the foundational mindset of the community that leads to the next discussion on the sharing of goods. But that's a characteristic. They held all things in common, right? The sharing of their possessions. And, and how is it described? It's described two ways. Do you see? 
Okay? That sounds like Democrat platform right there. Is that what that is? Is that a statist communal sharing of property? You enter this, all your property is ours. We share one purse. Is that what's going on? It's more like they were given to the needy, as it says in verse 34. So you have two statements to this, right? How is, how are the, how is it described? Nobody the, said what they had was their own. Nobody said what they had was their own, which means what? It was their own. They understood it was their own property. Is this compulsory or voluntary? voluntary? It's voluntary. And therein lies the difference between active governmental socialism and what the Holy Spirit calls us to do. It's a voluntary thing, not a compelled thing. All right. They had everything in common. And with just that last statement, that last phrase, people key on that last phrase and try to say, see, this is primitive communal sharing kind of thing. But it's clear that this practice of freely sharing one's goods with one another was a, a voluntary thing, not, not a, um, a forced deal. Incidentally, this is, these two first things, that they were of one heart and mind, and this communal sharing, this voluntary giving, these are Greek ideals. And we see this all the way back with Plato and Aristotle, that they, they held this to be ideals to strive for in a society. So Luke's pointing to these things, highlighting them, would have caught the Greek attention, right? The Hellenistic understanding of the day. They're doing this. We've always thought this was a good idea. It's always failed when we try to do it, but they're doing this, okay? Um, what else do you see in, in, in characterizing the community? What else does Luke bring out? What's going on with the apostles? The apostles were the leaders. Everybody laid uh, their goods at the apostles' feet. And, they, and the apostles, they distributed it. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. That's weird. We'll get to that in a second, why that's going on. Um, what, what else is, in, in the first two verses, is he using to characterize about the apostles, characterize the community? What's going on? They're zealous for giving testimony of the, the resurrection. They're giving bold testimony to the resurrection. And what else? Grace was on them. And grace was on them all. So you see the apostles giving this zealous, bold testimony, even though they've been threatened. Who's giving the grace? The same one who's giving the power. Here's the key. This ain't a human institution. Right? This isn't the Rotary Club of Jerusalem. There's a distinction to this community. There's a presence to this community. And it's the most unique thing ever on the face of the planet. God was there. God is there. God is here. In the church, he's present. That's the unique element. He's the unique element. It's different than any other human institution. It's not a human institution. It's his institution. So, um, let's see. What's going on with the laying property at the apostles' feet? Is this... Man worship. 
it's going it seems like the, they're giving it to them to distribute to those that need it okay so give it to them in the in the hallway of, of the church you know because they had those cool buildings and stuff back then uh, why would you lay it at their feet what is that showing submission, submission to Peter the great first Pope No, I heard a no. <laughs> That's a statement. Support your argument. Why? Why is it no? Because he's not, he's not the Pope. He's, okay, he's conclusion. The, what's the, what's the support? The they are the leaders of the church. So if somebody gives it up, they're giving it to the leaders. They're giving it to the community. Uh-huh. And then the leaders distribute it. The leaders are probably the ones that know yeah. who the poor are. Yeah. But laying it at their feet, does that seem a little bit, I don't know, if somebody, Dave, um, Dave Robertson does this thing to me that drives me insane. He'll come up to me since, you know, when I got on the elder council, I don't know what they were thinking, but they asked me to be on this thing. And he would come up to me and he'd go, your eminence. And he'd bow. And I, I, just, wanted, I just wanted to smack him every time he did it. I hated that. So sarcastically I, laying yeah, no, they're not sarcastically laying at their feet. What I'm saying is, there's a recoil to that, right? Don't do that. And he does it because he knows it, but don't you do it. <laughs> Bunch of black-hearted people. Um, he, he does it because he knows it drives me insane. But that's not what they're, they're not being sarcastic to Peter, you know. Um, they're not doing that. What they're doing is, who are the apostles? Who are they? Those who have seen Christ. Those who have seen Christ, and they've been what by Christ? Taught, instructed, and appointed, commissioned to do what? To be whose representative? Here's again, this nice. call for the answer in Sunday school. They represent Jesus directly. They're a unique office, the apostles. In fact, Paul would say later that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Incidentally, the church is not built on our liver shivers. I got to have a great discussion this week on Facebook about the authority of our liver shivers. I thought it was a great idea at the time. Uh, anyway, they're the ones who are the, the, the um, giving testimony, teaching doctrine, laying out what would eventually be written down as the New Testament, the record of what they taught, which is what we have, uh, and that's authoritative to us. When they lay this stuff down at their feet, they're not doing it in worship to Peter kissing the ring. What they're doing is laying it down at the feet in representation, as it were, an emissary of Christ himself. They're worshiping Jesus. Here, you represent him. You've been commissioned. You've been appointed by him. We lay this at his It's an act of worship to Christ, not to the apostles. I just want to be clear on that because... We'll get kind of wonky on that issue. Um, all right. The apostles were appointed representatives of Christ and as the foundation of the true people of God. They laid these gifts at the feet of the one the apostles represented. And one of the things that's interesting is that we see in chapter 6 just how eager the apostles are to offload that. They appoint deacons. Well, we don't have record of them laying it at the feet of the deacons. But the apostles are ready to, let's not do this laying at the feet thing. We don't, let's feel, you know, whatever. And, and you see that with um, Paul and, and Silas later. They go to a town and 
people start worshiping them as angels. No, we're just men like you. And I, and I think that's kind of the apostles' uh, response to this you see in chapter 6. They're ready to, to move that on. But anyway, all right, Luke gives us an example of what this would look like in Barnabas. What does he tell us about Barnabas? Describe him for me based on what Luke says. Joseph. Joseph. So Barnabas would be a what? Last name. A, a, a last name. A nickname, probably better. Uh, a nickname. Given, given by whom? If Barnabas is his nickname, by the apostles. What does that tell you about the relationship with him? They're close with him. They know him. They call him the son of encouragement, which the language there is kind of weird. It doesn't exactly translate son of encouragement. They're not really sure where. Bar means son in Aramaic, but they don't know where the anus, bar, anyway, however, whatever the rest of the Barnabas would be, <laughs> Abbas, Nabas. Um, there's no direct relationship there to be encouragement in the word. So they're just, I'm not, we don't know exactly how they get some encouragement out of that name, but nevertheless, that's what they called him, and you see it later on. And he certainly lives up to that name. He, Luke does a thing here that he does often. He'll, he'll introduce a, a primary character early on in kind of some incidental deal, and then he'll bring him up later on as a bit, like you see with, with Paul. And there was a young man at the stoning of Stephen named Saul of Tarsus who held the coats. And that's all you hear about him. And then a couple of chapters later, he becomes this guy, right? We, it's the same kind of idea with Barnabas. Um, if his name is Joseph, son of encouragement, the fact that the apostles gave him a nickname, a nickname is often a sign of respect or affection and that kind of thing. You see that here. All right, where was he from? Cyprus. Cyprus. Which kind of uh, leads us to uh, understand a little bit more why Paul and Barnabas start their missionary journeys from Cyprus. There's, there's kind of a connection there. What, what, what kind of, what tribe was he from? He was Jewish. He's a Levite. Now, in all of our studies of Leviticus, lo, those many moons ago, do you remember how uh, the Levites were in relationship, what, what, was the, what was the regulation with them and property? Were they to own property? They were not to own property. That's weird. How come Barnabas is owning property at this time? Well, think about it. The, 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 basically, there's a dispersion of the Jews all over the empire. They're, they're, they're um, separated out. Some of them have come back to Jerusalem, but many of them are, are around the empire. That regulation kind of has gone by the wayside with where they are. And again, it leads us into this transfer of temple worship, temple setup. You see a fading of those Levitical laws, even now, before Peter's great vision of the, of the net coming down. The Levites are owning land, and he's selling the land here. Um, so you have Barnabas. If Barnabas is a positive example of having all things in common, our next section provides something drastically different. Let's look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. But, that always creates a contrast, but... 
a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not for your was it not at your disposal why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to men but to God when Ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Just real quick, <clears throat> first, yikes. Second, uh, second, does this remind you of any Old Testament story? Does it remind you of an Old Testament story? Okay, well, what, what happened? He touched the ark and was struck dead. Touched the ark and he touched something holy when he was unclean. Uh, when he was not permitted to do so and he was struck dead. Okay, so there's that striking of God immediately in judgment there. Anything else? Who was the family that the... Eli. Eli? Oh, from 1 Samuel? Yes. Okay, in what context? <clears throat> he fell over off a stool. He fell over off a stool and broke his neck. Yeah. When he found out the ark was, had been taken. Interesting, it wasn't just that his sons had died. It was when he found out the ark that was taken that he fell over and died. Any other story? There was a, a, a family, I don't remember the name of it, that uh, the ground opened up and swallowed them up. Okay, that was the sons of Korah, the rebels against Moses in Numbers. And we'll get to that if I live long enough to ever get us there. Uh, Lot and his wife disobeyed. Lot and his wife. Cain and Abel. I don't know. Let's see. All of these, I think, are applicable. I, one of the the ones, the one that I thought of. In case you're interested. Well, there's a couple of them actually. But uh, do you do you mean? Do you remember? Do you mean? Do you remember um, in, in Joshua? When they, um, they, they, they fit the Battle of Jericho, and there was a man. His name was Achan. And God had told them before they go into Jericho, stuff is mine. 
it's all holy, bring it to me, right? Their first real battle, this is what's going to happen. It, it goes to the tabernacle. It's dedicated. First fruits of the battle, so to speak. And Achan took some stuff and hid it in his tent. Uh, the word that Luke uses here for kept back part of the proceeds, it means to pilfer or embezzle. And in the Greek Old Testament, the story of Achan, it's the exact same word. And it's really not used in many other places. It's a very rare word that's used in the Greek Bible. Why would he use that word? Why would it be pilfering or embezzling for Ananias to hold back proceeds of property that were his? What had gone on? What was the lie? So much. We're using the language of Luke. Um, we don't know what the price was. It was indicated that he was giving all of the proceeds. It was indicated that he was giving, that he was pledging all of the proceeds. And he, was it his land? Yeah. It was his land. Could he have sold it and kept part of it back and said, I'm only giving you part and that'd be fine? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're not saying this is the entrance exam into the community that you sell all your stuff and let the apostles take care of it. No, that's not what's going on. But when he pledged it, what, had, what, what, was the, what was the character of the property then? It was, God's. it was God's. Not just the church treasury. It's God's possession. It's holy to Him. Right? Is that what they're saying? Is that what Peter's saying? When it was yours, you do with it what you want. But your promise, your representation, your pledge made it holy. So Ananias had sold some property like Barnabas and he had apparently pledged the entire proceeds to the community. Um, how did Peter know to confront Ananias? Have some inside information somehow? He doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. What's the implication from the passage? The Holy Spirit, just like with Some little old lady in the church. Some little old lady in the church was listening. <laughs> Ananias was talking as he sniffed her apple pie going by her house, and, and that's kind of the way. Wasn't it with Achan that uh, they, they paraded all the people of Israel before the ark? And something, the ark kind of indicated that. No. Maybe not. No. I don't think so. I think it was just Moses. The, yeah, it was a metal detector. It was a. It was a Purple fabric detector, I think, is what's going on there. Um, the implication is the Holy Spirit is very prominent in this passage. And the implication is that the Holy Spirit is, is directing Peter through this. Does Peter judge Ananias? Yeah. Does he? Well. Who judges Ananias? Yeah. Are we told that? I mean, the guy just fainted and died when he was found out. I mean, was it that embarrassing in front of the church? I mean... What do the people believe? Great awe fell on all of them. What does that indicate? They were fearful. They were fearful. They thought, they understood that this was God doing this, right? But that's just one incident. Probably had a bad ticker to begin with and just got a little freaked out from the apostles. That's, that's all that's going on here, right? Just one time. Yeah. And then three hours later. And then three hours later. Um, 
What's the sin here? He lied to God. Testing the Spirit of the Lord. So, here's the first time we really see this spelled out. And it's in the context of judgment on the church, which is odd. The Holy Spirit was lied to. Can you lie to an energy field that binds all things together? Can you, can you lie to a thing Well, if you're crazy, maybe, but can you lie to a thing? It takes a person to be lied to, right? And so here, Peter is, in the context of pronouncing a prophetic word here to, to Ananias, he's announcing the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And we're given a little bit more understanding of who the being of God is. We have God the Father, clearly taught. We have God the Son, clearly taught. And here we have Peter referencing, you've lied to the person of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't lie to men, but to God. To God. <clears throat> Talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some lesser entity. He's not some lesser deity. He's God and he's a person. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible. Does that bother you? It shouldn't. Uh, but the doctrine that we codename, call Trinity, is clearly taught in Scripture. In the one being of God, there are three persons. And just think about it all night. It'll keep you up till 3 in the morning. And the one being of God, there are three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. They are co-eternal, co-equal, and co-eternal, co-equal, and co-divine. They're all the same God, three persons. All right. And here it is, taught. Um, just wanted to point that out in case you get into some discussions with people who knock at your door. <laughs> what's going on here here you have a community of one heart and mind and the only possible way that could be is because they are the Holy Spirit is there in them with them drawing them together except for Ananias he's got one foot in and one foot out right he's still relying on trusting in the security of his possessions but he wants to look good. He wants to look like a big-time giver, but he's still hanging on. Um, to lie concerning his sharing was to break the trust and unity of the community. More importantly, to break the trust with the spirit behind that unity. In effect, Peter was charging Ananias with falsifying the spirit of God or... or denying the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the community. And he says this, why has Satan filled your heart? Who else was that statement made of in the New Testament? Judas. Judas. It was Ananias' property to do with what he wanted, but when he pledged it, he set it apart for the community. It was sacred. Church finance is not a light thing. 
Ananias had betrayed not merely the community, but God. All right. Um, all right, Sapphira. Where had she been? Was there some strain in the marriage here because of this thing? or what, what, What's going on? Where had she been? What, did she come looking for her husband? Did, did, you know, why is she now appearing out of, out of nowhere? Why didn't they come together and lay at the, at the apostles' feet? What, what's going on here? Do we know? Does the text tell us? She was out partying. She was out partying. That's I to Jesus. That extra money. That's, with the extra money? Uh, no, that's I to Jesus. We don't know. Let's pull from the text what's there. We don't know. Luke does this frustrating thing with us. He's very economic with his words. He's got one point to make and one point only, and that is, what does a holy God do with this? Right? Uh, most commentators uh, believe that Peter is giving her a chance to confess here. Did you sell the property for such and such? Well, what's such and such? Or for so much, the ESV says. The price that Ananias, or the amount that Ananias was given. Well, there are two possibilities, right? There's the full amount of the property, and there's the reduced amount of the property. We're not given what so much is. But most trust, or put forth the idea, that he's asking her about um, the reduced value in order to give her a chance to confess uh, before the body. But it seems like from the context that she's trying to continue the lie, right? So she's condemning herself. And notice that Peter doesn't pronounce some curse or even judge them. His role is to confront, it's God's to judge. He instead lays out the consequences for her actions. Who's Lord of the church, Peter? No, Christ is. And so he acts as judge. What is the characterization of her part in this in relation to the Holy Spirit. How does he characterize what her part is? Agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. To test the Spirit. It doesn't say lie, but to test. And what does that imply? To push him to see how far he would tolerate it. Push him to see how far he would tolerate it, right? What's the clear answer? Not tolerate it. Not very much. <laughs> Not much toleration on this. The irony here uh, was that she and her husband both lay at the apostles' feet instead of the money. Again, what was the result of this in the community? How does this, and again, you see the refrain from, from Ananias' death. What's the re result from the community? Great fear. Great fear. You got one guy fallen, maybe just had a bad ticker. You got two... Same way, same place, same circumstance, what you got? Coincidence. Coincidence. <laughs> You've got a people trusting that God is holy. Um, that doesn't really feel redemptive, does it? This is New Testament. That doesn't feel redemptive. Yeah, but this is just money. But whose money? Okay. It's the same holy God. It's the same holy God as in the Old Testament. 
It's one book, one God. I, I would expect Peter to confront them, they repent, move on, but, but to, to kill them? Peter <laughs> True. Does that seem harsh, though? New Testament here. Does that seem harsh? Yes, but it's not unjust either. It's not unjust. Okay, it seems defined. Yeah, it's protective in a time of transitioning. It's very protective. Like, this is my church. This is what I stand for. He creates the church, and he keeps it pure. <clears throat> He's setting the example for everybody else. This is not tolerated. Do not, don't attempt to do these things. You need to be righteous in all the things that you do. Okay, this seems like a small thing. I mean, it could have even been a small piece of property. We're not told. Um, and, and I think you're right. I mean, all of you are right. He's a holy God. We're reminded, again, this week, aren't we? The depths of human sin. The depth of the blackness of the heart of man that knows no bounds and unless restrained by God it sinks to depths that cause us to recoil in horror. And we should. It is horrible. I think what we miss sometimes, though, is that what David understood when he repented of his murderous sin, the sin, first and foremost, is a rebellion against a holy God. And I think what we further fail to recognize is that all sin is a rebellion against a holy God. Of the millions of things that God is sovereignly doing and what has just gone on in our community over the past four days, one of them, I believe, is to give us just a taste of the horror of our own sin against the holiness of God. How incomprehensible is it that our little rebellions, these little things that we do, we don't get the horror of what we do in rebellion against God. And again, I, I don't want to minimize that at all. I mean, there are consequences to community, to family that are greater than just lying about sold property. But I think the underlying thing to take from this, one of the many underlying things to take from this is we don't get our own sin before a holy God. We recoil at that. It's horrible. But do we recoil at our lying? Do we recoil at our hatred and action of snarkiness and non-charitable attitude toward our brothers and sisters in Christ at times. That, that's an affront to God as well. Different consequences. I grant, I grant you that. But sin is sin. So one of the things I want us to think about here is the seriousness with, God, with which God takes rebellion against His holiness. How incomprehensible that such horror would happen in the church. But here in chapter 5, we see it in the early church. They were not immune. Neither are we. So one thing is, 
we should be conscious of our own sin and our own need for repentance. And the second thing is how great a Savior is Jesus. If this kind of horror that we feel is a taste of the horror that God feels toward our sin, how much more magnified is the mercy and worth of Christ and what He did for us on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That horror that He felt on the cross for my sin. How thankful we should be for Jesus. For our sakes, He who knew no sin was made to be sin, made to be our sin bearer, that we might not horrify God, but be His righteousness. In Christ, we're covered with something incredibly foreign to us. And under that beautiful robe of righteousness that is Jesus' robe, He's shaping us, molding us, conforming us into something not repulsive, not horrific, but the exquisite and beautiful image of His dear Son. The event here that seems so not that significant with Ananias and Sapphira served to be a sanctifying thing for that community, for the people of God. And that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that fell upon them all. I said this to my kids last night as they were crying over the news. One of the things that I think, and certainly we need to be <clears throat> about being the hands and feet of Christ, ministering to the family, praying for them, doing those things. Absolutely, we want to do that. But personally, let this event have its sanctifying work in your own heart. Grieve for the life lost. Pray for the family. Pray for righteous judgment against the person or persons who committed this horrible act. And pray for God's mercy. But let it drive you to the cross in repentance for the horror of our own sin against God. And in thankfulness, in thankfulness that we have so great a Savior in Christ Jesus. Emma last night, one in the morning when she got in from band, why did God let this happen? How do you answer that question? How do you answer that? I have to rest in, He's God, I'm not. Yes? Name another worldview that has half an answer. We have at least half an answer. <laughs> He's God, I'm not. And that in this, He is working something that I can't see that she can't see, that we may never physically see. But there are, like I said, a million things he's doing in the hearts of people all over this community over this. I pray that it's drawing us as a community to the worth of Jesus rather than blaming God for something which is our tendency to do. We want to blame God. And yet we don't thank Him for who knows how many children he had restrained. We don't thank him for how many airplanes he didn't let crash. 
let this have its effect of driving us to the cross, thanking Him for so great a Savior that we have. And then live it out with these, this family, with this community, displaying the beauty and worth of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray and we'll be dismissed. God, we're broken this morning. We grieve over the loss of this little girl. We grieve over the horror of the sin in our world. The craziness of it all. The irrational nonsense of it all. But Father, let us recognize that you have placed us here for that very reason. That in the midst of darkness, you have commissioned us to be ambassadors of the light of your dear Son. Help us as a body to be a healing salve to this community over this loss. Not thump our chest, but to be compassionate, loving, giving, self-sacrificing, to display the worth of Jesus in such a dark, dark situation. And in the midst of that, Father, help us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's you that works within us. Make us horrified at our comfortable sins. that we might flee to the cross and be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus through repentance and trust in His finished work. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.